Hello and welcome to the first episode of season three of the Startup Diaries. I'm Chris McGowan, Managing Director of the Burnshee and Manchester office. In today's episode, I'll be talking to James Lomas, the newest CTO at Bionic, the B2B comparison platform for business essentials. We'll be talking through their transition to becoming a tech-centric business, the war for tech talent, and the topical question of flexible working policies and what fits right for your organization. He also delved into his vision for the future of the business and how this reflects his reasons for leaving Compare the Market after a 10-year spell with that business. Hope you enjoy. Uh, welcome, James. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your... Hi, Chris. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, should we just dive in? Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your career journey to date? Yeah, great. Let's let's do that. So, um, where to begin? So, I started off as a uh, as a software engineer. Um, actually, my first job was with the Coca Cola company, which was a really fun place to work. Um, you got a lot of free merch, to be honest. I remember walking around West London, uh, head to toe, you know, baseball cap, t shirt, bomber jacket, you know, free advertising. I guess they also did some quite. Um, Quite lovely things I remember. They gave you a uh, free case of Coke or whichever drink you preferred on the pay- on your payday, which um, which made me feel like the most valued software engineer in London. But um, in those early days, uh, this was this was basically pre-engineer empowerment. We were leaning into things like JAD and RAD, Joint and Rapid Application Development, which sound absolutely archaic now. But really, we were trying to look for ways to as engineers to enter the conversation, but that was really more theoretical than in practice. In practice, the way it would work is that all the other people, everyone who wasn't an engineer would leave the room and have their own separate meeting to talk about the important project, issue, incident, the thing. And then as an engineer, you'd kind of hear back about it, probably eventually by way of a functional spec. you almost had like your face pressed against the window of the meeting room saying, you know, bang, bang, let, let me in there, let me in. And, you know, I just got really disheartened. I wanted to be the person inside the room rather than the person outside the room. So as a reaction to that, I then kind of became a management consultant. I worked for KPMG for a number of years. As I say, probably a direct reaction to get really in the centre of the room. And then I took on some more senior tech roles. And it's really when I joined Compare the Market in 2011 that things took off in a in a big way. Yeah. I mean, obviously referencing um, Compare the Market, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Because you would have been there from the early days there as well. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, when I joined Compare the Market, it was, um, I suppose, quite a traditional IT setup. Uh, a group of folks taking orders from their business colleagues, really without any form or feedback loop and in a relatively short space of time we took a wrecking ball to that particular model and smashed it into lots of little pieces and rebuilt something that i think was a lot more product and customer centric in which the tech folk were definitely front and middle of the business and you've got to i guess appreciate this is 2011 stroke 12 so we were we were creating product teams we were leaning hard into autonomy, mastery and purpose, CI and CD, we were aggressively shipping MVPs. And I know today everyone does these things, but at the time, this was really quite vanguard. And we were we were fast. We were really fast. We, um, we moved from what was, I think, originally one release per month to a customer lead time of between one and three days, depending on which team we are talking about. And, it, you know, it was really a, a fantastically energizing time where, 
pretty much anything and everything seemed possible. Um, that said, we did feel, a, I suppose, a constant tension between uh, this rocket ship we'd created and the more sort of slightly more corporate environment. And one of the symbols of that, I remember, was, uh, was the dress code. So the dress code policy at the time was everybody had to wear a shirt and a tie and a suit. And as you appreciate, that's probably not the preferred uniform for most people in tech and data. And we were partnering with um, a company called ThoughtWorks at the time, who you may have heard of. And uh, they did a thing whereby they went into the local town centre, uh, which was Peterborough, and they bought um, a load of pretty hideous 80s and 90s ties, which they then put in a plastic bag. And on coming into the office on Monday morning, they do a lucky dip into this plastic bag and, uh, and sport this pretty hideous time, which I suppose was a way of simultaneously conforming to the policy, yet sticking two fingers up to the policy. So, yeah, a lot of happy and fond memories of, uh, of the time at Compare the Market. I love that. I think you always find technologists will be the people pushing boundaries when it comes to the way of working with its, you know, dress code. You know, nowadays you can't have a tech team without, uh, you know, a team of developers in flip flops and a, you know, ripped jeans and a t-shirt is how I always describe it. Um, but yeah. So why did you, I guess, leave there? You, you've established a, been a part of a great journey and you've now jumped in two feet uh, into joining Bionic. What was the, the reasoning behind that? Yeah, sure. I mean, having been at Compare the Market for 10 years, I had, a, I guess, a good hard think about what it was that I next wanted to achieve and some of the characteristics that might interest me. And it wasn't really things like this sector, this number of employees, this size of tech department. It was really more about attitudes, behaviours and opportunities. So the three characteristics that I realised I was looking for was, number one, I wanted to work with authentic people, no hidden agendas, uh, hidden agendas, no corporate BS. That that was really important to me. I also wanted to get the opportunity to reimagine a business model or experience, basically to do another transformation. And there had to be a purpose and cause I could get behind, which is when Bonnick became really interesting because there are six million small businesses in the UK who want to save time and money on their business essentials, things like energy, telephony, insurance, and so on. And they've got the added burden and responsibility of making sure that they do right by the business and its employees. But, but nobody's addressing their need states. This is a category that doesn't really exist. And Barnick is a company that is standing up to solve these problems for small businesses. And if you consider that about 60% of the UK's employment, maybe 50% of GDP is generated by small businesses. You can see that by helping these businesses, ultimately you're contributing to the prosperity of the UK. So if you're going to start with why, wow, I mean, this becomes a totally inspiring cause to stand behind. Yeah, no, I agree. agreed. So obviously joining, joining Bionic, jumping in, uh, what are you now looking to, to build at Bionic? What's the, what's the goals for you? Yeah, what's what's the goal? So Bonic today, I'd say, is a fusion of human support and smart tech and data. But the heritage is pretty much human support. It's uh, It's been a people-based business, mainly centred around the voice channel. And they started a digital journey a few years ago. And, and to be frank, it made some really impressive strides. They have things like an innovative uh, screen, share, screen share solution, whereby customers and agents can collaborate over the user journey. And, and by the way, when consumer price comparison sites are trying to imagine 
comparison 2.0 that hybrid model is really what they have in mind and there you go it's alive and well at barnick mm -hmm. but there's a huge opportunity to create a further digital platform to augment human support and really make the complex simple and straightforward for customers be there 24 7 and provide a really helpful um helpful advice and information so if you drill down on that a little bit further what we really need is a platform that could be multi-product and multi-region. We can use it to integrate accounts or hubs uh, and, and apps. We can enable real-time data streaming to help with personalization and enable Barnick to really break out the existing ecosystem and be there when and where customers need us. So that's one way of looking at what I'm trying to build. And I think it's going to be, well, a really interesting cultural, intellectual, and ultimately a technology challenge. Mm. No, that sounds great. I mean, must be, uh, I mean, if the business is a bit, I imagine the business is receptive and open to it. So hopefully it's a much easier process for you. Never straightforward. I'm sure it'll be easier to say than it is to do, but there you go. That's right. <laughs> it always is. Uh, what are one of the things when we were obviously planning this um, podcast, it was a little while ago, one of the words that you brought up, uh, it was accountability and it's something you want to create within the workforce. Uh, it stands out for me, something that we believe in here. So I guess, you know, could you explain to us how, how would you go about creating accountability within that team? Yeah, sure. I mean, back in the day, we, you know, we, we'd read uh, Damping's Drive and we were kind of leaning hard into autonomy, mastery and purpose. But I think in retrospect, we probably forgot um, about accountability. And you, you could argue that it's kind of already there. It's implicit within purpose. But we found that without um, a more explicit definition, you can end up in some pretty weird places with multiple hosting environments, many versions of a PaaS, of a CMS, different languages, design patterns, and so on. And the argument thrown back at you actually can be pretty compelling because it's, well, hold on a minute. You've given me the autonomy to choose the, the process, tools that I used to do deliver my solutions and that's autonomy in action right so i'm exercising i'm exercising my right to choose and by the way uh and this is the the bit that is the subtext in brackets maybe i'm going to choose to solve some more intellectually challenging technology problems over some fairly boring customer problems and if that's the scenario you're going to get some pretty undesirable outcomes increased tco um, impaired workforce mobility, reduced revenue, none of which are usually towards the top of a company's wish list. So what I found is really helpful is to be a bit more explicit to, about the guardrails that constitute accountability. And that helps the teams themselves, their managers, the execs, basically it helps everyone. So I'm talking about things here like the immune system, a wrapper you can put around your product and services to make sure that it at least meets the basic customer expectation, covering things like cross-browser testing, page speed, secure coding, monitoring, alerting. You can be quite explicit about the build it, run it, own it philosophy. Make it clear that the team's accountable for the code that they write. And you can use things like tech radars to inform technology choices and clarify that organizationally, maybe multiple versions of a PaaS isn't really a cool place to be. And obviously, if you can ask the community to develop these guardrails, it really helps build an understanding and builds adoption of them. That's great. No, it's something that I think it's, it's, it's a massive value for me and anyone that I hire. Uh, just out of interest, is there, is there a way in which you can identify that in the process of recruitment? Is there any any way that you would throw in a bit of a curveball there, be able to 
figure out a way of using that. It's more for me, <laughs> possibly, <laughs> possibly the listeners. Well, I don't have uh, a magic solution, but I think it's always interesting to explore what does accountability mean to mean to them as an individual. Yeah. Um, you know, does it incorporate organisational and customer goals as well as technology goals? Uh, and if it does, how do they kind of measure and exercise that in their kind of current role? I don't think there's a, a magic solution to it, mm. but that's probably where I'd start the conversation. I'll take note of that and use that. We are we are hiring at the moment, so I'll start to implement that into as a, as a question in my in my process. Um, one of the things that you've obviously spoken about as well is is building career uh, career build a career framework. So how how do you go? How do you plan to build a career framework, and how does the company know if they're getting it right? Yeah, I think well, career frameworks. It's it's quite an interesting topic. I mean, I think some of the top wants that technologists. I've always expressed to me is they want mastery fine um they also want really accelerated career progression and the first of those may involve i guess more natural growth maybe it's about learning new languages tools or processes the second is probably a more traditional view of ascending a career ladder all the way to its pinnacle of world domination or something so by the way i think you know we often try to create career frameworks with really good intention, but find them surprisingly difficult to implement and really even more difficult to institutionalize. And a question I always kind of ask myself is, do you actually need one? How do you know if you need one? And I haven't found an answer again to that. I've not found an algorithm that's going to spit out an answer. But at Barnick, career growth, seniority, fancier job titles, to be frank, they've all become an active conversation. So... I therefore deduce that it is now time for us to lean into um, creating a career framework. And there's, I think, four things that I found to be quite useful when trying to create a framework. Firstly, is not necessarily seeing it as a linear thing. It's really more of a pathway than a rocket ascent into orbit. And it's okay to stop off along the way and take a look around uh, in a different team or a different technology. It's also about I think behaviors as much as it is about tech, technical skills, you know, as Netflix famously put it, there's no room for brilliant jerks. And it's, it's also about being a good teammate and developing really great communication, co-working and influencing skills. I think also thirdly, you know, don't try and write it all down. I've seen career frameworks that are effectively uh, multi-dimensional spreadsheet models. And step one of the framework almost becomes understand and get familiar with the framework, learn to navigate it. So you're gonna to have to keep things simple and really tolerate a high degree of ambiguity. And then finally, you know, use the wisdom of the crowd. Rather than seeing the framework as something that you might engage with if you wanna get promoted, be active and be transparent. If for example, you and every member of the team are willing to share their actual and desired position on the framework, what you've just created is a support network for mutual success. And yes, you can look at things like length of service and number of internal moves and promotions as a way to measure the success of a career framework. But for me, I think the final point really indicates that it your career framework may be working. Whatever we're on now, millennials, etc. Do you see a fundamental change in maybe the more junior people you hire into your team and what they're looking to, to get out of their careers than you have historically? Or is it very much been quite similar so yeah wants and desires 
it, the only change I can observe, and it is a generalisation, is just the uh, the appetite for accelerated progression is just kind of greater and hungrier than it than it was before. Mm. Um, it is a little bit sometimes like an arms race, which you know, can be a good and a bad thing. Which is why you know seeing a career framework as more of a pathway than a ladder can actually be be a useful thing. That's great. No, thanks for that. Um, with uh, the, the, the world and where it's hopefully returning, I will say that to, to, to some sort of like it's the new normal, right? Where, where we're going. I know one of the things you've been trialing at Bionic is a new sort of working from home slash hybrid model, being a bit in the office. Um, seems to be something that you've probably had running for, I guess, a month or so now. Is that right? It's been in place for a little bit. I know a lot of companies are getting to the point of deciding what future working looks like for them. How did you come to the decision? Do you want to outline the approach for the listeners of what you've taken at Bionic and how you came to decide on this approach? Yeah, sure. Uh, by the way, Chris, I've lost track of which version of New Normal we're on now. So yeah, I've given up on that as well. <laughs> so you, might, you might need to inform me. So um, I suppose um, I, I found it quite interesting, actually, when, um, when companies kind of publicise and take a very firm position on we're fully remote, we're fully in office, we're hybrid, we're two days a week and it's Tuesdays and Thursdays, it's three days a week. Because I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure we're much, uh, much wiser or kind of better able to predict the future post-pandemic than we were pre-pandemic. So in a way, our position at Barnick is strangely not to take a position, if that makes sense. We're, we're viewing the next four months as an experiment and really what we're trying to see is if we provide some really broad guidance that involves make sure that you consider the requirements of both your team and the organization as well as your own personal preferences so basically if we treat colleagues as adults is that enough is that enough to deliver the outcomes that we're all talking about you know the concerns we have around collaboration innovation productivity and can we can we create a sense of belonging and it's you know, it's too small a sample size really to make any empirical claims. Mm -hmm. But I, I have noted that our last three hires have all been females. And what I'm beginning to suspect is that this kind of very mature experimental approach to uh, our flexible working is just only going to help the diversity in the workplace. And by the way, we already have a really good start point where over 30% of the people in tech and data are already female. But I just think it's a kind of a new opportunity that I'm really looking forward to exploiting. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the hottest topics, right, in, in the industry. You know, how do we get a more diverse workforce? And how, how, you know, how are we inclusive? How do we attract uh, a diverse workforce? It's, I think it's 90% of the conversations I have for clients are around that. Um, do you think that that's led to, directly led to helping with diversity within the business on a, on a wider scale? Are there other things you think might be useful indicators for what attracts a, a diverse workforce? Um, it's, well, you asked me some tricky questions that I don't <laughs> have the, 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 the answer to. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what I have found is that by taking a mature approach, by treating out people adult to adult, by having a high degree of flexibility and trusting people to do the job that they're paid to do, it can get you quite a long way. And that isn't necessarily by its nature just going to create a diverse workforce, but I think a byproduct of it may be a more diverse workforce. All right, excellent. I'll try not to throw too many more. Uh... Oh, no, do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I guess one of the, one of the key things for me is that you've come from a house household name. You know, we all know the adverts. We've all been on the website, and then you're jumping into a less well known scale up. How do you challenge and engage candidates during the recruitment process to get on board with Bionic versus you know a company that we, we all know from the fact that they're you know they're a B two C. We see the branding, we see the advertisement out there. Yeah, this is actually really pertinent question because it's something that I've had to go through, and I think sometimes it requires candidates to press Control Alt Delete on their preconceptions and the things that they believe to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me personally, I think from probably my first job onwards, I've always had a belief that the biggest companies employ the best people who are probably being paid the most to perform probably the most interesting jobs. Uh, and clearly that's not true, but it took me quite a long time to get there. And when you consider something like Barnick, a fintech scale-up, I really think it comes down to candidates being honest about what they value and where they get their energy. I, I recommend to candidates that they take the laptop test. So I'm talking about the moment when they start their working day and they lift the um, lid of their laptop and they tune into their emotional self. How are they actually feeling? Is that bringing a sense of excitement? Is it a crackle of energy or is it more about boredom and frustration? Or is it even about dread? And depending on how they feel, how does that affect how they show up in the workplace? And what's in and out of their circle of influence? Maybe there's things that they can do in their existing environment to make it a more positive experience or an even more positive experience. And maybe maybe there's not. So so for, for me, I kind of realized um, I'm quite energized by going quickly and I'm mm-hmm. frustrated by slow decision making. So knowing that means that I just know I'm going to be better off in an environment like Barnick, for example, where speed to decision is measured in hours or days rather than maybe other companies where it's going to be measured in weeks to months. So I really see my job as kind of working with the candidates to open their minds to you know, to these new possibilities that could be out there in a scale-up opportunity like Barnick. Yeah, no, I agree. I think personally, I've always got a bias towards um, sort of smaller growing businesses. I, I always see sort of career, career trajectories. You know, we spoke about changes maybe in generational wants in their career. I think career trajectory, if you're wanting to move quick, take a risk on a, on a smaller business. I mean, it's not even necessarily a, necessarily a risk. Um, just, you know, I think everyone should maybe try working at a smaller business for um, a startup, a scale-up, throw themselves in, see where it takes them. I think that, as you alluded to, to there, it can be it can be quite a journey, a fast-moving yeah. one as well. So, yeah, well said. Yeah. I think f- final question for me, uh, James, um, is, and I always like to ask just for a bit, piece of advice, really, that you you'd give to anyone who's taking that leap from looking at taking the leap from a corporate business to that startup, that scale up, what, what, what advice would you give them before they make, make the plunge other than do it? Yeah. Other than do it. So I suppose to be candid, the things that they suspect might be true, probably are true. Mm. So there's probably going to be less people than they're used to. There'll be times when they'll, kind of look around the office and say, whose job is this? And maybe it's nobody's job or maybe, oops, it's my job. Uh, I've got to do it. Um, And there's going to be a huge amount of task switching. You know, you're spanning strategy and purpose down to detail implementation and then back up to strategy. 
probably all in the space of a two-minute conversation. But if you acknowledge that, and if you're clear and true about the things that you value, where you get your energy, and ultimately the things that are going to make you happy, if you can be really authentic about that, and you decide to make the leap, the leap is actually, I think, a springboard into a more liberating and fulfilling future. It's great. Well, James, look, that's been it's been great talking to you. Um, I think one one last thing is maybe give you a bit of a plug because I know, obviously, for obvious reasons, we we know that the business is is growing. If you want to um, get in touch with James, I'm sure he can reference a few little bits. But we're uh, helping Bionic grow significantly at the moment. I'm sure you've got a few pains to uh, painful roles to fill uh, within your team. If you want to <laughs> give a shout out for anyone who's listening, <laughs> any vacancies in particular. Well, look, I'm not going to give it an always hiring message, but yes, we're always hiring. And if you've been inspired by anything I've said in the podcast, just kind of just kind of reach out and um, look, we're always after great people and let's start the conversation. Easy as that. Love it. Excellent. Well, James, look, really appreciate your time. Thanks for filling us in on uh, your background and, and the, the reasons why you've jumped into to Bionic and the story there. Um, pleasure talking to you and yeah if anyone who's listening like like James referenced there get in touch with him directly I believe you'll be on LinkedIn and likewise if anyone wants to talk to myself about future episodes or getting in touch with anyone from these podcasts please uh, feel free to find me um, on LinkedIn as well thanks again James appreciate your time perfect thanks Chris